Hi there, it's Victor speaking. Today we decided to release a quick reaction video to the events of last Friday where sadly Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. We wanted to do a quick episode on what the consequences of this will be in the Senate and what is the parliamentary procedural aspects in relation to that. Hope you enjoy this episode and I just wanted to take a moment and say how great of a public servant Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was for this country. She will be sorely missed. Hello, and welcome to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. I'm Victor. And I'm Chris. And today we wanted to bring out a special episode regarding the Supreme Court appointments in the Supreme Court, what the President has to do, what the Senate has to do, and what it will take to have a nomination, a confirmation, and appointment of a successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. And I guess it should be, I guess, noted right at the beginning that this is particularly kind of timely, not just because Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, but because there's a lot of speculation that the Republican Senate will try to push through a uh, nomination or confirmation process faster than perhaps has really ever happened before. So as a little bit of background, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on Friday, September 18th. Additionally, currently Republicans control both the presidency and the Senate, so in theory they have enough votes to confirm a replacement nominee. Uh, currently, there is um, talk about a nominee being brought forth by President Trump, but no nominee has been brought forth, and this is the time period in which we are recording. At present, just as a background, I wanted to give this short summary that was published by 538. They indicated that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, her death has basically been the third most recent to an election in our history. Well, her so, death is the third most recent vacancy. Uh, are the other, I think the first two might not have been deaths, but I could be wrong on that. Most recent vacancies to, in terms of a presidential election. So the other two elections, uh, other two vacancies that were cited by 538 was the vacancy by Justice Minton, which occurred on October 15, 1956, and Justice Taney, which occurred on October 12, 1864. For those two vacancies, there was 22 days and 27 days before uh, the election, and there was no nomination or confirmation of a Supreme Court justice during those time periods. Additionally, Justice Trimble, as well as Justice McKinley, both had vacancies 6,706 days prior to an election. And in the case of Justice Trimble, there was no replacement nominee. And in the case of Justice McKinley, there was one replacement nominated, but there was no confirmation. So in this background, we first want to discuss the basic constitutional requirements for what you need to do to appoint a Supreme Court justice to the Supreme Court. You want to tell us about that, Chris? So the basic basic background is that this is so the Supreme Court is one of these nominees that has to pass through the advice and consent method of appointment, and all that really means is that the president has the ability to sort of suggest a candidate, uh, and then this sort of nomination proceeds to the Senate, uh, and the Senate then, in their advice and consent sort of role, they review this candidate. Uh, Today, that usually means there's a committee hearing process and then uh, a Senate, a general Senate sort of debate on the, the candidate and then a vote to confirm, at which point the president actually offers a commission uh, official, officially sort of appointing the 
uh, nominee to the the court. So as that kind of sounds like, it's a really a, it's actually a fairly simple three-step process. There's just a fair number of sort of traditional rules that have grown up around that that aren't necessarily required, but have been part of the practice for a relatively long time now. I guess we could cover some of what those requirements look like based on our current rules. Um, would you like to cover that, Victor? Sure. So the primary source that we're using for this uh, current rule requirements is actually a Congressional Research Service report that was uh, published in April 4th, 2019. If you want to read the source documents, it's called Senate Consideration of Presidential Nominations, Committee and Floor Procedure by Elizabeth Ubiki. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. So basically, in terms of restrictions on the president, we don't really discuss them because there really is no restrictions. The president can really nominate whoever they like. However, essentially, the restriction from the Senate side is that these nominations are typically in written form delivered to the clerk of the Senate, who then reads them into the Senate record. And then once they are received by the Senate, the Senate can begin to act on them. So one of one sacrosacts rule in the Senate that there seems to be no at least attempt to violate is that nominations can't be acted on the day they are received, except by unanimous consent. Although it does seem like, in some of my research, it seems like I think the one maybe exception to that rule is that if a senator is appointed or nominated, there have been cases where senators will get, rather than going through any committee hearing processes or anything like that, they'll get a pretty quick, maybe not same day, but they can skip a lot of the more traditional steps because there's a sort of senatorial courtesy where they'll, uh, because they're part of the Senate and the other senators have to confirm them. They're not going to say this person isn't qualified or isn't a good sort of candidate because it would look bad on the rest of the Senate. It wouldn't be particularly courteous. Yeah, I mean, the senatorial courtesy was actually a thing of, at issue when um, Elizabeth Warren was questioning Jeff Sessions for his appointment to U.S. Attorney. It was a big issue back then where um, essentially uh, Mitch McConnell stopped Elizabeth Warren from speaking because she said bad things of the nominee who was a senator. So apparently not allowed to do that in the Senate. So which... a little bit of a norm violation there. But you can do it for any other nominee. So the so once this nomination is received by the Senate, it's typically referred to a committee. Once again, the rules provide for a bypass of this referral, but only through unanimous consent or through essentially a procedure where the Senate first has to adopt rules saying that these types of nominations don't have to be referred to. Victor, could you just remind everyone real quick what a unanimous consent order looks like or what it it is, I guess, just break it down a little bit because it seems maybe obvious by the name of it, but maybe not everyone knows. Exactly. Thanks for thanks for bringing this up, Chris. Unanimous consent essentially means everyone has to agree to it. So if there's a senator present who objects, it's voted down. There is no approval. So basically, as long as no senator objects, the Senate can do whatever it wants with unanimous consent. So and typically, a lot of things are done with unanimous consent in the I'm, Senate. Can you debate a, a, a unanimous consent, a motion for unanimous consent? Is that something that happens, or is it just a straight up-down vote? Essentially, it's just... It's not even a vote. So basically, a, a senator will ask. I ask unanimous consent to do blank. And if no one objects, that blank is done. There you go. So, so yes, there's typically no vote. Um, in fact, like for example, you'll hear lots of times bills passed by unanimous consent 
or similar things. And that basically means no one objected to this bill. And so basically the Senate is done with the bill and it gets considered passed. A lot of times the Senate, in practical terms, needs unanimous consent to do anything in a reasonable amount of time. So what the Democrats could do if they really wanted to stall things was to basically object for unanimous consent for everything. For example, they could have a quorum call after every single vote. They, they really could slow down procedurally if they wanted to, but it would require a lot of effort and would probably be using up any goodwill they might have left. But at this point, they might want to. So one of the things they could do is they can ask for a quorum call after every single vote. And they can also ask for a quorum call whenever certain senators leave the room, for example, or something like that, just make sure there's enough people present. And quorum, for example, means 51 or more senators. So if it really takes a while to read through the role to establish that quorum is actually there to actually establish that there is quorum. Right, so just to return to like where we left off, so the idea of actually having, uh, of skipping the committee hearings and just having unanimous consent for a Supreme Court justice is pretty abnormal. I mean, like you wouldn't expect that to be the case. Yes. I mean, it's typically the norm to have at least a committee um, hearing or investigation or at least a committee report on a nominee if there's any objection. So, and the fact that it's the judicial committee or judiciary committee is the committee that this gets referred to is simply because it is um, uh, justices or, or they do it for the same for um, other court appointees. But if it were, I'm guessing, maybe somebody for another executive department, um, they would probably be referred to a different committee. So this is it is it is sort of a standard um, advice and consent process. It's just for judges. It's a judiciary committee. So it's not for every appointment judiciary committee it's just the nature of justice is being you know judicial so yes so the supreme court nominees refer to the judiciary committee and then what now there's requirements that not only of the senate itself there's requirements of the judiciary committee before the nomination can proceed since this nomination was referred to the judiciary committee so essentially the rules of the judiciary committee are complicated but essentially on nominations they're pretty simple and essentially the rule that references nomination is that basically any nomination on the committee agenda can be held over until the next meeting of the committee or for one week, whichever occurs later. So basically, Democrats could get one week delay once this item is first notified to the Senate. And anything can be put on the agenda by the chairman of the committee at any time, essentially. So I imagine as soon as the nomination gets officially referred to the Judiciary Committee, the chairman will probably immediately schedule a meeting to start the process. Right. And speaking of the committee hearing, so normally we'd say the committee does investigative work, maybe background checks. It might, um, you know, subpoena records of, or it might get the FBI to investigate the justice, uh, or, the, or at least the, the potential justice. It would do a whole bunch of background research. It would conduct several rounds of hearings typically, right? Yeah, the Judiciary long... Committee also has their own investigatory staff, so they don't have to rely on just the FBI. They can do their own investigation. There you go. So typically how long they... typically does this last, then? Would we expect for, you know, the run of the mill? So I'm in modern sure. times, it seems that it takes around 40 days, actually a little bit more than 40 days, to get from nomination to committee hearing. Um, this was, for example, what the last few justices, what the pause in time was, basically, for the last few justices. But once again, 
the committee has to actually allow for this hearing. This hearing is not actually a requirement. For example, there's a number of nominations which don't go to a hearing. Instead, there's just typically a report issued by the committee. So, for example, most U.S. attorneys don't go through a hearing. They simply get reported out of the committee. Um, and then they go back to the Senate for a full vote once the committee approves of their nomination. Right. So basically, once we get to a hearing, most delay time is expired. So there's actually not too much delay time available during the actual Senate. The delay time is essentially between the nomination and the committee hearing, because this is where the real work gets done. Once the committee reports, there's not much work done except for the actual process of parliamentarily going through the motions to vote on a nominee. Although speaking of this, there, I think there is maybe one potential slight extra piece of delay in that um, while some, most of the time I believe reports are not actually written reports that are uh, turned out, there is a potential option that the committee could issue a written report, which takes a little bit longer after the hearing is done, but would include sort of a written explanation of the committee's findings and the reason they're going to report favorably, you know, not favorably or, or whatever. So... That, that is, I guess, it could, I think the, 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 the research I was looking over said that could maybe add another week after the hearings are over if, um, I guess, they were going to try to issue a written report, although I think that it would be unlikely that a Republican-controlled committee would uh, let that delay happen, because that, I think, is maybe at the discretion of the chair to bring that up. Yeah, so really, the only, the only practical delay I see here is... If there is not enough senators to establish quorum in the Judiciary Committee because they're out campaigning, so I haven't actually looked at the senators on the Judiciary Committee, but if they're... In- I think they would probably get back to this for... If there's a Supreme Court nominee, I think all of the Judiciary Committee is going to make it back to Washington and probably put a pause on their campaigning. Yes, but if they're in a very tight race, they might decide that's not ben- most beneficial to them. <laughs> I Maybe. That could be something... That holds up the whole process if there are enough Republican senators who think that they would rather wait it out. Uh, but but this is assuming, and, and even if there's enough Republican senators for the full Senate, I'm sure that the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will at least get all of these preliminary matters out of the way before mm-hmm. getting to the full Senate. So basically, once we are done with this hearing, the committee reports on the nominee. Then the chair has to basically formally state that the committee reported. I assume it will be a favorable report on the nominee. Having Once, said that, though, is that a requirement? Does the does the, the only Senate... requirement is that the committee reports the nominee. So in theory, the committee could say this person is horribly unqualified, but if the Senate as a whole says we disagree, then the nomination can still be confirmed. Yes, but what the committee can do is they can just not report at all. Then, they're then it then the Senate would need to formally discharge the committee from the hearing the nominee. Gotcha. So basically, once the committee is reported, the Senate can proceed to debate the nomination. Uh, there's a requirement that the top, the nomination can't be taken up for an for one calendar day once it's been reported. But basically, the rules have been interpreted over time to mean that essentially, if it's reported on Monday, it can be brought up on a Tuesday. So there's no 24-hour requirement. There's just a physical calendar day requirement. So that means like you can report at, let's say, 11.30 p.m., at night and bring it up to this rule does not prohibit you from bringing it up to a vote at let's say 1am the next day because it's a different calendar day. 
so yes, but this was in existence, and then there's also a requirement that uh, a nomination is debatable as well. So typically that means in the past, senators could debate at length on these nominations, and the nomination wouldn't proceed until you achieved 60 votes. But because of previous rulings in 2013, when uh, Reed removed the threshold for closure on on nominations excluding the Supreme Court, and then Mitch McConnell removed the nominations on all the closure rule on all nominees. Essentially, this they were both the over. option, I think, that yeah. everyone, you know, talked about. So you may have heard, our listeners may have heard of people talk about the nuclear option. That was the decision to remove um, the 60-vote majority from the Supreme Court nominees. Yes. So now you basically only need the majority vote to end debate, which basically means more than more than half of the people voting vote in favor of ending debate. So once cloture is invoked, the Senate has a final vote after 30 hours. So what that means is you can't vote on this nominee until 30 hours have passed. However, because of a large number of judges being appointed by the Trump administration and Democrats delaying their nominees by effectively waiting out the full 30 hours for each nominee, the Senate actually reduced this 30 hours to two hours for all nominees except for the Supreme Court. I assume they will not reduce this for the Supreme Court, but there's nothing stopping the majority from reducing these 30 hours to two hours or even less if they want to do so. I'm, I'm curious as to why you think they wouldn't shorten it to two hours. I think at this point, McConnell has shown really no, qualm, no qualms about creating or violating existing norms and creating new ones as it suits kind of his need. So I think if well, there when was you're like, approving in batch, which they were doing for the yeah. circuit court and district courts, you probably don't want the 30 hours because it adds up, but for one nominee, right. probably but, uh, keep I mean, the... I think if the whole idea is just we don't even want to deal with the, the idea of Democrats delaying this because this is a foregone conclusion and this delay is pointless, why even bother with the 30 hours? Just Well, of course, they could reduce it to two hours. Like Transitioning to the next thing I want to talk about, how you can speed up this nomination process, is yes, you can basically eliminate most of these time periods. So a lot of these time periods are informal, so particularly the committee's investigation. They're from the committee side, but Republicans control the leadership of committees, so they could have the investigations be as short as they want. Essentially what could happen is Republicans could essentially decide to get rid of all these time requirements and essentially do things as fast as they want. So, now, in some of these cases, is it really a matter of getting rid of time requirements, or is it a matter of just Republicans using Republican leaders using their discretionary ability to just simply do things faster than they normally would have? So, are, are we going to have to actually see legitimate votes to change rules, or would it just be, hey, as the chair, I can do this the fast way, or I can do it the slow way, and I'm so going to go with the fast way? It seems like the biggest delay is this rule from the judiciary community to basically allow you to delay things by a week they would have to vote to change that rule or at least to suspend that rule for this particular issue essentially every other major delay is informal so like the investigation could take i don't know a day instead of a month and a half if they so desired speaking of this investigation because i feel like maybe we rushed past it what what is the sort of, I guess, purpose of the investigation? And maybe it seems obvious, but, I mean, you would think most of the justices who have been appointed in recent memory have been appointees from either 
state courts or state high courts or the federal sort of appellate circuit circuit so these people have already gone through confirmation hearings either at the state level or um, already before the senate so why what what are they really expecting to turn up in investigatory hearings that would like what is it going to be a big deal or is it an important thing that these hearings might get sped up or compressed or is this just you know I think this is just doing due diligence, making sure that there is no conflicts of interest, no financial impropriety, improprieties that are uncovered during this investigation. Uh, really is just doing, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure this is a person of good moral character to serve up with a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Really, this is the only time when the Senate can really undo this this nomination. If later on it's discovered that there is some questions about this nominee or some other things the the other alternative is impeachment which is very difficult to do so really this is the time where you want to get things right but in this day of partisanship and wanting to get things done fast before the election really you could imagine this thing happening a lot faster because they want to just solve this problem or i guess take advantage of the situation one of the things the Republicans also do to speed up the nomination process if they really wanted to was they could essentially discharge the Judiciary Committee from considering the nominee immediately. Uh, this is technically a debatable motion uh, once you are in the executive calendar, but the fact of the matter is is that, once again, whether or not to allow for unlimited debate is really a decision that can be decided by the majority of the Senate. So if Mitch McConnell wants to allow for this debatable motion to be no longer debatable or to essentially break the filibuster on this debatable motion and discharge judiciary committee he really he can't there's nothing really stopping him from doing that except for senate norms and practices but essentially doing this in and of itself would be a violation of senate norms so discharging it would essentially be continuing that violation but if you discharge judiciary committee from considering the nominee then you can essentially vote on the nomination in probably less than a week after it is submitted to the Senate, if you really wanted to. Additionally, like there's a bunch of rules that require things to happen on a calendar day or the next calendar day. It seems that these rules have been interpreted by the Senate to essentially just mean physically different days. So you could start you could start the debate or you can start the process of getting to the debate on the nomination the day before then you can essentially start to ban a nomination. Once the clock strikes midnight, invoke cloture, go home for the next 24 hours, come back the next day, wait for the last six hours to lapse, and then you can vote on your nomination. You can also get rid of this 30-hour requirement, which I just mentioned, and go for a vote immediately, once again, by changing the rules of the Senate using this nuclear option that Chris mentioned previously. We want to also discuss some of the things that Democratic senators could do to slow down the nomination. I think, to be honest, the, before, just as a, a preface to this, I think some of the, well, most of these potential slowdowns are more hypothetical at the moment. I don't yeah. think they're necessarily, we're, I, don't, I wouldn't expect to see these, but there are, I think, potentially things that can be done. So basically, there's a variety of delaying tactics. So the Senate, by the way the rules are written, requires you to essentially use unanimous consent instructions to move things along. Essentially, without unanimous consent, it 
things take a while. We You saw this firsthand when we talked about how the Affordable Care Act passed the Senate. It took a lot of very careful parliamentary technique that Senator Reid was able to actually get the legislation for a vote, even though he had the required 60 votes to break the filibuster. But I think here, again, that's one of these things that it's a little bit... Today is easier to do these things because um, we've kind of gotten rid of the 60-vote threshold and we're down yeah. to a simple majority. But so. the real thing that Democrats could do is essentially force Republicans to be in D.C. the whole time, especially close elections. I think that's their strongest political weapon that they could utilize. Well, isn't that a kind of a double-edged sword, though, in a sense that, I mean, Democrats are trying to win the Senate right now. So you'd th- I mean, right, I guess right. They but the, the minority is an advantage here because yeah. you only need one Democratic, or technically two Democratic senators to do all these things, whereas all the rest of them can be out campaigning, mm-hmm. whereas... And the, you only need one or two because of the quorum requirements, right? Yeah, essentially. Or, uh, you might need two due to, like, requiring two seconds certain motions and stuff okay. like that. The, all these link tactics won't be actually taking place when they actually bring it, be coming up for a vote. So all those senators who are campaigning can still fly back for the actual vote on whether or not to confirm the nominee. They're just not physically there in Washington, D.C. before um, all these votes, essentially. So basically, what the senators can do is they can basically force a quorum call after every... So basically, can force a quorum call after basically every single motion. Or Actually, can, yeah... That makes me think. So, actually, there are more than enough Republicans in the Senate right now that no Democrat could show up and there would still be a quorum, wouldn't there? I think it's... Yeah, it's always for the majority. Yeah, Yeah, the majority always has enough quorum, yeah. Well, not necessarily. I guess you could have a plurality, but a significant... You could have, like, say, 49 Republicans, two independents, and then the remainder would be Democrats. Independents typically caucus with one caucus or the other. That is true. But, but I yes. feel like this would be an issue yeah. if ever there was a time when the independents started, sort of had a bigger opportunity to break away from the party they lean one side or another to. Yeah. A, a moment like this is something where that could happen. I think we might even see that with some of the Republicans speaking of their, their majority. I think, I think I, I believe Susan Collins has the, the, uh, the Senate. And Senator McCoskey has done yeah. as well. So, But there's... That's still 51 votes, enough to confirm nominee. Well, I mean, there's also Mitch, or not Mitch, but there's Mitt Romney, Utah. He, I think, he's also mentioned, at least I've seen coverage since this weekend that, according to a former state senator, he would perhaps want to break with the rest of the Republican Party, but then according to his own spokesman, he's very much willing to do whatever the, I guess... However, the leadership decides to play this, he's going to go along with that, at least right now. So there is a potential for defections, or at least not complete um, agreement for at least three Republican senators. A few Democratic senators could keep the enti- most of the entirety of Republican senators essentially forced to stay in Washington, D.C. in order to maintain quorum in the Senate. And they would essentially have to be at least coming into the Senate every so often to indicate that they're present and continuing doing these quorum calls is something that really can be an effective delaying tactic another thing that um, can do now we're talking about more less hypothetical more practical solutions assuming more republicans join them is so once democrats have three republicans support them which like we said could but like it's could, not could happen but likely, not necessarily but it is possible 
given in, in that case the vote comes down to 50 50 with the vice president casting a tie-breaking vote the first time in history for a vice president to do that for a supreme court justice uh in favor of the nomination in this case the the nomination would be confirmed however 50 senators by themselves is not quorum for the senate so if those three senators who joined the democrats are willing to actually break established republican caucus rules that that republican senators part of the caucus have to vote on all procedural matters with the caucus in that case if they're willing to break that trend then then democrats could do this so what democrats could do is they could simply leave with these three republican senators in that case there would be only 50 senators left in the senate and then the senate would have no quorum and they would be unable to actually cast a make any decisions the things that mcconnell could do as a retribution for this is essentially try to arrest the absent senators so in this hypothetical scenario the safest thing would be to essentially be on airplanes flying away from dc when this is taking place and not tell mitch mcconnell that this is going to happen before you do it so so in that case there's really no way for you to stop this quorum from disappearing do you think that this is well? Maybe I don't. I don't think that anyone's actually going to get on a plane and try to flee the country. But I think. I mean, you um, don't have to flee the country. You could just fly back <laughs> to your home state. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, I was reading an interesting article again this morning that suggested so McConnell. What do you think? Do you think that McConnell cares more about hurrying through the uh, Supreme Court nominee or? Um, keeping the majority in the Senate Republican? Because I've read some analysis that thinks... I think so, it's getting the Supreme Court nominee. Yeah, so I, I, I would think that as well, but then I look at some analysis that says, like, so Susan Collins is running a tough, I think, race. There's another um, race that I, I can't remember which state, but I want to say it's a southern state where there is the Democratic contenders already polling above the uh, incumbent Republican, and I think that if the Senate turns blue and the House stays blue, uh, even if Trump were to somehow win the general election for president, this could be a pretty like devastating blow to Republicans. A lot of things could... Uh, I'm just I'm curious to think, like, like strategy-wise, right now, the presidential race looks like it's polling in favor of Biden winning, which means... Should the uh, Republicans fail to get a nominee this uh, term, they wouldn't get to have, I guess, the nominating authority, like ability, but they would still control the Senate in theory if they didn't try to push through this and they kept all the seats they needed to keep. What would you rather not be able to say have veto control over whoever Biden tries to put on the court, rather than lose your whole majority and potentially have a entire blue government? Yeah, but I th- I think I think his hope is that he can basically overrule anything that is done through the Supreme Court. Mm, I guess there's that. But I don't know. And then assuming that four Republicans are in Democrats, then you don't need to do any sneaky parliamentary tactics. You can just either vote down a nomination or adjourn it or essentially postpone the decision on the nomination until after the election. In this case, you can just not care about anything because the senators know whether or not they're getting reelected or not. And then if they're not getting reelected, they can just line up cushy jobs by voting in favor of certain judicial nominees. 
or not. So, like, for example, if um, if the senator from Maine, for example, loses her re-election, she might switch her position to be for nominee, and the Senate could very reasonably do this confirmation after the election, but in the lame duck session before the new Senate is sworn into office. So, for example, even if enough senators announce that they are willing to delay this until after the election, their views on this issue might change after the election. And, for example, Mitch McConnell can do all the parliamentary procedures now so that after the election, the vote can be essentially taken almost instantaneously. Because essentially what the Senate can do is it can do all the hearings, it can do all the vetting, it can go through all the committee procedures for judicial nominees and get everything ready, report to the floor, and then just not vote until after the election. I think that, I mean, honestly, that might be the the, the play here. That might be the smartest move if they really are worried about the impact of appointing justice on some of these senatorial races. And they can also probably play it in the sense that they can say they're going to appoint pro-life justice and that they need yeah. the support of voters to do that. So they're going, they're, they might even try to use it as a get-out-the-vote method. Yeah. That could be an interesting idea. I mean, I think that's how they were able to... That's at least what some people, I think, attribute some of Trump's success to was that um, McConnell holding up uh, Garland's nomination and then everyone kind of having the understanding that, well, if we get a Republican, we can get a social sort of conservative on the court, which they did get in the form of, um, was it... Gorsuch. Gorsuch was the point Gorsuch. first. Right, right, right. But um, I also think that it's, it's worth pointing out, though, that it's not just for Republicans join, because there's also a potential for some, I think at least Joe Mnuchin, people... I think he's what the Democrat from West Virginia. Um, I don't think a... he'll do anything because he's not no? up for re-election and okay. he has time. I think I think he only does these things when it's like when people remember that it's his re-election time. Gotcha. At least that's just, my my just feeling in on case this. There's a slim, very slim, but potential chance that you wouldn't. Uh, you, you might need, say, five Republican dissenters because you might see one Democrat vote with the Republicans. Although it's likely that almost all of the Democratic senators, if not all of them, will vote against the vast majority of the votes that we're going to see as this happens. I think Joe Mnuchin is, is going to vote in favor of the nominee if it's clear that the nominee will get approved gotcha. by the Senate. So I don't. Yeah. So honestly, I don't think there'll be a 50-50 vote in the Senate because I think Joe Mnuchin will vote in favor of it or some other senator. So that doesn't go on the record as opposing the nominee. I mean, it's possible he doesn't do that. Uh, we'll see what happens. Anyway, thank you for listening to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. Um, hope you listen to us soon in the future. We're working on an episode about the European Union and the Parliament there. Have a great day.